Lit House is a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. In this episode, the American writer Jenny Offield talks with the Norwegian literary critic Bernard Ellefsen in a conversation that took place on August 17, 2016. Introduction by the Norwegian writer Gunhild Øyehaug. Thank you. Well, uh, my name is Gunhild Øyehaug, and I am in the program described as an Offil enthusiast. And that is absolutely correct. This short introduction to Jenny Offil's books will be filled with pure Offil enthusiasm. It's a quite new enthusiasm. My Beckett enthusiasm goes back to 1994, and my Wolf enthusiasm goes back to 1996. Jenny Offil's first novel, titled Last Things, appeared in 1999, but neither my Beckett nor my Wolf enthusiasm were able to discover her. In fact, I didn't read Offil until 2014, when her second novel appeared, titled The Department of Speculation. And it happened like this. One day, a close friend of mine, her name is Tiril Brokåkre, sent me an email with a link to an interview with an author I had never heard of before. Her name was Jenny Offil. In this interview, Jenny Offill talked about writing the novel, Department of Speculation, and she said, I did break a secret rule of my own with this book, which is to never ever write about someone who is a writer or a writing teacher. Because who cares? Generally, smart novelists get around this by making their protagonist a painter or a photographer or a documentary filmmaker. That little feint seems to placate the critics. I bought the book immediately, since I too had decided a while back to not cover up my protagonist in a forthcoming novel and make her a painter or a photographer, but a writing teacher, which is also what I do. I write and teach. And I did find some truly inspiring and hilarious scenes regarding the teaching business. For instance, in this scene, I quote... My friend who teaches writing sometimes flips out when she is grading stories and types the same things over, the same thing over and over again. Where are we in time and space? Where are we in time and space? Unquote. But what shook my reading heart the most wasn't the recognition of a sentence I find myself writing on student papers from time to time, but the fact that these lines suddenly stand out as an existential question, or like poetry. Where are we in time and space? Where are we in time and space? It's the simplest question, if you are awake at least. But repeating them like this, and in capital letters, slows the reading down, enhances the depth of the question, and the reader stops, lifts her head up and thinks, yes, where are we? in time and space. And this is an effect that occurs a lot. Department of Speculation is a page-turner that makes you stop at every page. It's a book about a woman, a man and a child, and it doesn't revel in an intricate plot, rather radiates in the lack of it. 
I've tried to analyze and come up with an explanation on how this can happen, how these diametrically opposite forces of profound reflection and immense speed coexist in this novel, how it is possible that a book that doesn't narrate through carefully planned cliffhangers and where each chapter consists of almost independent, little and dense, extremely dense fragments and who quotes Rilke, Yeats, Coleridge, Civilization and its Discontents, Kant, Ovid, Wittgenstein, People, People's Magazine and so on, is able to give this page-turning effect. But I haven't come up with an answer. The only answer I've got is that it's simply brilliant and that only brilliant literature can make this happen. It takes us through different stages of a marriage. Happiness, having a child, suddenly having your house invaded by bugs and having to cook every piece of clothing before you leave the house, having a severe crisis, almost leaving each other. And it does so both humorously and poetically with raw honesty and wit, originally and inventive. Reading it filled me with the same deep enthusiasm and exhilaration I believe explorers feel when they discover something completely new and astonishing. I'm sure I've convinced all of you now that my awful enthusiasm is for real. What also happens when this strong enthusiasm fills your mind is the urge for quoting. Reading the novel, I sometimes felt I had to rush to find someone to read to. I would open my window and look for someone to shout out a quote to. For instance, have you ever seen a description of the first trembling feelings of motherhood so beautiful as this? I quote, The Manichaeans believed the world was filled with imprisoned light, fragments of a god who destroyed himself because he no longer wished to exist. This light could be found trapped inside man and animals and plants, and the Manichaean mission was to try to release it. Because of this, they abstained from sex, viewing babies as fresh prisons of entrapped light. I remember the first time I said the word to a stranger. It's for my daughter, I said. My heart was beating too fast, as if I might be arrested. Unquote. And what about this, about the exhaustion one can feel feeding a baby? If I knew telekinesis, I would send that spoon over there to feed that baby. And about having a child with colique. And that phrase, sleeping like a baby, some blonde said it blithely on the subway the other day. I wanted to lie down next to her and scream for five hours in her ear. Domestic life is a danger zone if you attempt writing about it. And it seems particularly if you are a woman. Domestic life as topic lies behind tall barriers with yellow triangle warning signs saying danger, do not enter. And if you call the writing government, they will explain that very few survives this topic. You risk the danger of being seen as a woman, writing about dull and intimate things, irrelevant to the rest of us who only care for the true existential things, which hardly ever appear in, an, in anyone's home while they are bathing their daughter. As Ophel's narrator says, I was never to get married. I was going to be an art monster instead, 
Women almost never become art monsters because art monsters only concern themselves with art, never mundane things. Nabokov didn't even fold his own umbrella. Vera licked his stamps for him. Unquote. Today's headline is Wife and Art Monster, and this suggests that terrible cleavage between the two, like in No Wife Has Ever Been an Art Monster. The wifeness of things disrupts everything. But the most striking feature about this book is how it combines its elements, how it states at least two things at the same time. James Wood has said, if it is a distressed account of a marriage in distress, it is also a poem in praise of the married state. If it brutally tears apart the boredom and frustrations of parenthood, it also solidly inhabits the joys and consolations of having a child. If it laments the work not done, the books not written, the aspirations unfulfilled, it also represents work well done, a book written, the fruit of aspiration. And perhaps this is the answer to my question earlier, how diametrical opposite forces can coexist in the same piece of literary work, that this is what will arise if you ask a simple question. What is love? What is motherhood? What is truth? What is language? What is a story? What is the universe? What is a lie? Where are we in time and space? Another quote, which is itself a quote, from Rilke. I want to be with those who know secret things or else alone. I look down at the street below my window where I've just shouted out this particular sentence from Jenny Offill's wonderful, mind-blowing book, Department of Speculation, and a passerby is looking up at me. What was that? And I say, it's from Jenny Offill's Department of Speculation. You have to read it. And when you've read Department of Speculation, you'll rush to the bookstore and buy her first book, Last Things, and you'll be astonished by that one too, which is about Grace, eight years old, who has to get through life with a very mysterious mother who thinks she has seen a sea serpent in the lake, and a very scientific father who ends up as a TV host, and you'll laugh and cry with her too. The passerby shouts, Can you get these books in Norwegian? And I shout, yes, you can get Department of Speculation in a brilliant translation by Tiril Borg-Åkre. And you should definitely come to Literaturhuset on the 17th of August to hear Jenny Offel herself talk about it. I'm going to give an introduction. I'm writing it just now, and I've invented you. So you won't really be able to come in person, but you'll come with me in my text. Is that okay? That's fine, the passerby replies. And then she disappears out of sight. She's probably headed for the kindergarten, which is right around the corner. And here we are. I am so happy and honored to welcome Jenny Orfield and Bernard Ellefson on stage. Welcome. Thank you so much. I think that was the most beautiful introduction I've ever had. So um, thank you. There's something very exciting about having another writer give an introduction for you. Yeah, so then I'm going to pick up on the worst part of it, um, <laughs> which is yeah, um, the idea behind this book, writing about how, how hard it is to write, mm. how hard it is to write the second novel, 
It sounds like a terrible idea, I would think. And if a student of yours came with that to you, what would you say? Oh, I'm a terrible hypocrite because I've, <laughs> I've sent many a student away from this idea. Um, because it, it's often, um, it, it feels like, and perhaps is, just an exercise in self-indulgence. Um, I used to work in a bookstore and I'll sometimes say, oh, if this book had been described to me, I never would have bought it because who cares about what some writer in Brooklyn who can't finish her book wants to tell you. Like, we've all, we all know that, that one. But um, on the other hand, there's some other part of me that thinks um, no story is actually untellable or uninteresting. Um, it's, it's really just in the way you tell it. And um, for me, it's really just in the, the language itself and how you try to um, defamiliarize things and, and make something as new as possible with it. Yeah, and the defamiliarizing, uh, that in this book is very, it's important and it's, uh, it's interesting because as Gunnar mentioned, it's built up of fragments. Uh, it's, they're both very narrative and not. Uh, how did the book get this shape? How did it get this form? Um, well, it got this shape with a lot of you know, hair pulling and teeth gnashing. Um, it took me a long time to figure out how I wanted to do it. But um, I had this idea, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit the idea of like a novel of ideas, but in the domestic sphere. And one of those things I kept thinking about is in those sort of more philosophical novels, um, people are always walking around through cities for long periods of time just thinking. And I thought if I had a narrator who is a wife and a mother too, that, you know, anytime she was on a long train of thought, it would be interrupted by her actually having something she needed to do in the real world. Mm -hmm. And also I thought when she was doing things in the real world, perhaps she'd be sort of, um, you know, watching from an eagle-ish height down. And so that kind of zooming in and zooming out was, was one of the ideas for the beginning of the book. And then I think the fragment form just began to happen because I, I, I googled, one night I googled writer's block, <laughs> you know, second book, 15 years or something. And of course, m mostly it's just like suicide. <laughs> like just, that's just what you get. Um, so I don't recommend uh, that particular Google uh, rabbit hole. But I did come across this uh, story of a writer that I like, uh, Mary Robeson, and that she had gone a very long time uh, between books and what she did was she started to write, she lived in Los Angeles, she started to write at uh, at red lights, just scribble for that long because she had to trick herself into writing. And I remember thinking, all right, I'm going to trick myself. I'm going to just make these small fragments and see if uh, I can figure out how to write again. And then those began to kind of um, start to seem like something to me. Yeah. Was this something you wanted or was this kind of a necessity uh, I'm thinking about the, the novel is about a writer who has wants to be an art monster, mm -hmm. uh, but she gets a daughter and uh, everything crashes. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's like the world interrupts her, right? Right. Uh, it's, and the, the for shape of the novel and this story seems to have a lot to do with each other. Um, yes, I mean, I think so. I, I felt like, um, I wanted the, I wanted to write an, 
my first novel is more linear, and I wrote a kind of failed novel in between these ones, which will never see the light of day, which was also more linear. And so by the time I got to this one, I felt both sort of uh, hopeless and kind of free. Like I was just going to write um, exactly the way I wanted to. And in terms of that being fragmentary, I really wanted to try to capture... Um, you know, I also am a big Beckett fan, a big Wolf fan, and there's something about the way um, consciousness and the kind of quicksilver of consciousness is is shown in that writing. I just wanted to find, you know, my own uh, version of that, of of what it's like if you are one of those people. We have this expression. I don't know if it makes sense in Norwegian. Head in a jar. It means you're just someone that doesn't even remember. You have a body. You're such a um, a bookish person. And I wanted to see what what happens if if a head in a jar person is actually forced to be in the world and what literary form would I have to take to show that? Yeah. To me, it seems like a kind of stream of interrupted consciousness. Right, or something. exactly. Yeah. yeah, when um, people said it was stream of consciousness, I was like, if only. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... No stream, lots of yeah. rocks. Uh, but still, what I'm, I'm hinting at something here, I think. And um, um, there, is, um, there, there have been some writers who have talked about poetry, mm-hmm. for instance, as the most economical art form. It's easier to write somehow mm-hmm. because it's fragmented. And uh, the short story as portable. Mm-hmm. And um, Ah, I see where you're getting. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I have a quote from another writer, uh, and this is, this is the one with the portable short stories. I could narrate the basic outline while driving to the farmer's market, work out the dialogue while waiting for the airlines to answer the phone, draft a rough... You know yeah. Where yeah. Does that some, have something to do yes, with it? Yes, and I mean, I started as a short story writer. I still, in some ways, sort of secretly maybe identify more with that. Um, and, and here's really the key to the puzzle. Uh, one of my closest friends is a poet. So while all my other friends who were novelists were saying you know what, you just have to go in there, just write a long draft. It doesn't matter how bad it is. Just write it and fix it later. My friend who was a poet was saying, why don't you write one sentence a day? <laughs> and I was like, that I'm going to try to do. And um, and so, yes, it was a necessity. Do, how did you do that? How did I do that? I um, well, so the book I was mentioning that was kind of the failed uh, novel, which was a... Uh, kind of played with some of the same di- ideas as Department of Speculation, but was from a different point of view and uh, just a mess. But um, but when I finally gave up on it, these same um, novels tend to be a little more um, practical and in the world than uh, the poets, at least in America. And so all, all my friends were like, look, you've already gone 10 years without a book. Just fix this book. Like, you're, you know, I'm, and just fix it. Don't throw it out. And I was like, it's bad, I have to throw it out. And then my friend said, just take take 10 little things from it. Why don't you just take 10 little things? It could just be an image. And so so I did that. And it started to be, um, I don't even think 10 made it in, but what happened was um, I came out of like the tar pit of the novel. Like when you're in a novel and it's going badly, it's like you just, and you keep being like <laughs> stuck there. And instead it was just suddenly like I was standing free, and I just could see these tiny little glimpses. And so I think it, it was born out of, I, I mean, I think the word is not necessity. I think the word is, you know, desperation. Um, but it was also a return in some ways to my roots. Like I already, I was always 
um, I always read a lot of poetry. I was always, that's how I started out as a writer. And um, I was really drawn to experimental fiction. So I've been kind of uh, passing as a more <laughs> conventional novelist than I was. Yeah, because um, there are a lot of quotations in, the, in this mm -hmm. book. And uh, many of them are from poets. Yes. And uh, most of them are from male genius poets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, you get the idea that the art monster probably isn't a novelist. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, you get the idea that he is a he somehow, right. maybe, and that he's a poet, and that mm. he's maybe Rilke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? um, I think I could cop to being a, a failed poet and maybe secretly a man, <laughs> if that's where we're going. Um, I... Um, <laughs> There's a there was a documentary which I never saw actually because I just thought the title of it was so amazing I didn't I didn't want to go and have it somehow like not live up to and the title of this documentary was I'm secretly a very important man <laughs> and so I feel like there there are moments where I'm I'm secretly a very important man yeah. and no one knows this and I sometimes tell that to my uh, especially my female students like just think sometimes to yourself I'm secretly a very important man and you know just take take notes for later <laughs> um, and uh, just to finish up on the on the uh, shape of the book um, another uh, man that uh, at least uh, I was thinking about while reading it is uh, Fernando Pessoa yeah and the book of disquiet that book was and, a big influence on me yeah how um, well, I just think there's something about the melancholy and the dreaminess of that book. And, um, it, it is a very, a book that sort of dives straight into philosophy. And it also has that kind of, um, you know, really bleak kind of, uh, existentialism, which is harder to carry off when you're like a mother or a father, I think, you know, where you're just sort of like, it's all means absolutely nothing. <laughs> But onward we go, onward we go to the school bus. Um, and so I, but he, that was a big, uh, a big influence. And interestingly, the editor that I finally found, um, for this book, it turned, the first time we went out, that was our crossover. We turned out to both really, uh, love that book. Yeah. yeah. Um, to me, it sounds completely plausible to be that <laughs> melancholy as a parent. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, the op opposite um, ideas in the quote that Ginhild gave was wife and art monster. But to me, wife doesn't, doesn't seem all that important. It's mother. Yeah. yeah. And this is a novel about motherhood and art to yeah. me. And um, I have another quote. There is no more somber enemy of good art than the pram in the hall. <laughs> I know that one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, how how is motherhood and art enemies? Um, are well, mm. I think that. I mean, I will talk just about motherhood, but I I do think at a certain point it is actually just parenthood. Um, at least for many of the men I know who do something that is requires some kind of solitude or something where you need to be alone in your head because the nature of of parenthood and especially motherhood in the early years especially, is that you're almost never, like, alone in your head. It's Even if you're um, supposedly by yourself, 
you might be sort of half listening or you might have the baby monitor or you, you might suddenly really... <laughs> I remember uh, we had a party that we would throw every year for our friends. And this will just show our child aside, but we, everyone would make these dioramas, even though we were all grown-ups. And we had this, we had this party and everyone would get drunk and be very fun and then we'd all fall, fall into bed. Then we had it after we had our daughter and uh, everyone went to bed. And then an hour after we went to bed, I suddenly realized how many small chokeable objects were around the floor, and I sprung out of bed, and I, I spent all night, like, you know, getting them all up so that no one would choke on them. And so I just feel like both the sense of kind of playfulness that you need for art sometimes um, was, for me, not very available in the early years, and also that sense of of solitude. I mean, I'm not one of those people who can write in a cafe with people all around me. Like, I, you know, I, I want... I want to feel like there's not another soul around for me to you know, write my one sentence or whatever I'm trying to do that day. That all sounds very, you know, that sounds very grandiose, but um, no, yes, but it's the truth for me. <laughs> um, but still, uh, it feels somehow that without the kind of big reconciliation, that this is, book is still an attempt to reconcile the two the two roles somehow. Yeah. By um, because it's a very beautiful book about about parenthood or motherhood, and a lot of beautiful um, small passages about you know seeing the daughter and uh, nursing for her and everything, uh, and it, it kind of emerges as a literary subject in itself, mm-hmm. and that's kind of how uh, the daughter takes revenge. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, she takes up more and more space mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as. As literature. Right, right. Um, to me, that was one of the joys of writing the novel. I mean, I, I kind of had an idea as I was beginning it because I sort of felt like when I first became a mother, I was having these moments every day. Some were were more boring than I ever could have imagined. And then suddenly I would have like such a sublime moment and it wouldn't be what I was expecting. It would just be something that felt that way. And that kind of swerving back and forth and back and forth. I started thinking of books that I love that do that. And there's a book, um, uh, Jesus is son by Dennis Johnson. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's actually about a heroin junkie. Um, so it doesn't have an obvious <laughs> affinity, but, um, but I thought to myself, I'm, I want to write Jesus's son, but like with, with the marriage and kids, because there's this way that it moves all the time from these seemingly kind of just, you just in the grit of everyday life moments to something that seems like you can see farther than you've seen before. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was, I love the idea. That's such a great line of the daughter sort of her revenge is that she, she slowly becomes the subject of the book because actually, it is. It's. There's a line in it where um, the narrator says to a friend, you know, uh, something about how hard it is, and she says, of, "Of course, it's difficult. You're you're creating a creature with a soul." And uh, I think to me, "Oh, right. <laughs> that is why it's it's it is subject for for writing and for a lot of thought and philosophical uh, speculation." Uh, to me, uh, 
Rachel Cusk seemed also like an important uh, influence somehow. And she's not that well known in Norway, I think. Uh, I was just talking her up to my editor here yeah. saying you, you need to publish Rachel Cusk. Yeah, you need to. Uh, um, and she's, uh, she's maybe a little um, harder somehow than him, but um, her, uh, she writes about the tedium. Right. Uh, and, and it was kind of dangerous when she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, she got great. a lot of uh, yeah. kickback for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have have you had? A, did you feel it that it was kind of dangerous somehow to to describe the terrible things about being a mother? I did. I yeah. absolutely did. Um, because often, especially when uh, your children are young, if you there's some mothers, and it's a little bit of a secret handshake. And interestingly enough, that Rachel Cusk book, A Life's Work, is the secret handshake of the mothers that have like the slightly dark view where it's like, have you read a life's work? <laughs> Someone will be like, oh my God, why did she even become a mother? And you'll be like, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to leave now. Yeah. Or you'll be like, oh, yeah, it's yeah. like the secret handshake. Would you like uh, all natural um, juice or would you like a glass of wine? These are the two <laughs> secret handshakes. But um, in America, they published a life's work, which is a memoir actually about the early years of her children's life. And it's devastating and amazing. <laughs> and they published it with this, pastel cover with two baby shoes on <laughs> so it was kind of like a bomb like in a yeah. in a wrapped box I just imagined all these kind of you know mothers like buying that book and sitting down to read it and just being like that and they kind of fucked up the handshake though yeah, yeah. exactly so um, I felt very afraid that um, I mean I have a, a theory which is I don't I don't doesn't actually have any basis in reality. But I feel like there's this idea that you can't, at least as a mother I felt this, that to, to, to speak to the what is difficult about being a mother or to speak to um, just a yearning or a longing for the way your life used to be, it's even, it's to dare, you know, maybe that God you don't even believe in to suddenly be like, oh, you don't want to, you don't want to be a mother? <laughs> Which is actually, you know, the worst fear you have once you become a parent. What if this is taken away? And so I think to even voice it, most, at least of the women I knew, if they said anything, and it'd be very mild in my opinion, then they would say, oh, but of course, you know, I've never been happier. Of course, you know, it's, it's, it's all so worth it in every moment and every day and every way, you know? And so, so part of me just wanted to tell the truth. I think men have told the truth about parenthood. Um, I mean, often because they were in a room, a study writing while their wife was taking care of the baby. But um, yeah, so I, I felt I felt very nervous, and I also felt worried that I'd be marginalized for writing about motherhood. And um, the art monster in me wanted it to be a real subject. Um, to return to the narrator of this book, um, you talked about the 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 fright of something being taken away. And that seems to be a very important uh, stream in her somehow. Um, she's constantly failing to enjoy good moments mm-hmm. for the fair or anguish that they will somehow someday end. Yeah. Um, and uh, what I was really wondering about is how much time does this, the wife, the, as the narrator is called in the second part of the book, spend thinking about death without actually telling us because that's not that it 
it's always under there, but it's not. Mortality seems more important than the surface would uh, right. suggest. No, I mean it's the it's the huge subterranean yeah. uh, theme of the book. At one point, um, I mean she's a, a sort of depressive freak, especially the earlier part of the book, and um, she. It's not explicitly stated, but it, she's not sure sometimes that she is going to be able to live. She just feels too sad all the time. And so one of the things that happens when she has a baby is her, there's a line that says it's the fine print on the birth certificate, like that out, which is, I think not explicitly mentioned, but is suicide is taken away. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, I think it is something that runs underneath, underneath the whole book. Um, also the idea that if you, if you do love someone, if you do love, in this case, you know, two people so deeply, would it fix your brain? Would it make your brain, um, not that way? Yeah. Um, and it will probably, but uh, only temporarily. Right. Right. Yeah. right. Um, but, uh, but does, is, is that, the um, is that what changes when she has a daughter that you can't actually you know, give in to the existential despair, or mm -hmm. is that is that the fine print that it, that the, that sensation it's no longer available as a mm -hmm. uh, way of um, life or something? Well, I think that uh, there's an element of that. There's a there's a Laurie Moore story where um, it's two mothers talking on the phone, and they're talking about something going wrong with one of their kids, and the other one says, "Well, that's why you have two. You can't just have one." If you have one, then you know what you do if something happens to them. And then she says, someone's in the room and I can't say it, but it's R-O-P-E. <laughs> and she spells it out. And, um, and sort of a cheery little odd moment, um, supposedly on the telephone. And so I think that there's that, but there's also the, the sense in which for the narrator, her spectrum of experience has been expanded to such a degree. Um, after she chooses to not be just a head in the jar and to to try to love other people um, through all the complications of that. And so I think that um, she is more alive and more awake, really, than she is in the earlier part of the book. But being being awake in this world is also can also be painful. Yeah, and it is for her eventually, more and more. Um, because, uh, as I said, halfway through the book, something changes, right? Not only does she uh, does the marriage uh, almost break up, but uh, uh, she is described as the I in the story, the, and then she becomes the wife. Right. And <laughs> she um, she changes too somehow. Can I talk about that? What? Yeah. The two parts of the book. Um, well, that sort of speaks to. Um, both thematic things in the book and also to the structural stuff I was talking about beforehand. Um, I, I begin the book with her, um, directly addressing the man that becomes her husband. She says, you, it's I. It's all about that. And then at a certain point when they kind of go into the prescribed roles after they get married, she says, my husband, that possessive, my husband, my wife. And then when everything falls apart, I wanted it to kind of capture that my experience has been that sometimes in really dark times, you, you kind of 
spin up and you can look down on what's happening. And so she sort of watches it like a play. And that means that the section of the book that is like that is, um, it, it can have almost like more ironic distance and it can take some of the, uh, maybe the melodrama out of the scenes. And then for me, at a certain point, I realized that this is just, I wanted, ideally I want the, the reader to feel the same distance of closeness to the other characters as the narrator does at any point. So sometimes you're very up close and sometimes it's like you're watching, you know, distant figures on a stage. So that was what I was doing with that. And then slowly that kind of emotional calibration goes, goes, changes again and comes back out. Yeah. And she also loses it somehow, right? Right. Yeah. This uh, part of the book, it's introduced with a, uh, one paragraph that repeats mm -hmm. the same phrase over and yeah. over again. Yeah. Kind of language dissolves somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, possibilities did that give you that she loses it somehow? <laughs> you know? Um, well, I did it. Um, I wish I had the book um, to show it, but uh, it's like right at the halfway point in the book. And then um, it just says at the beginning, how are you? And then it says, so scared, so scared, so scared, so scared. The whole page, it's like a visual poem, which also in English makes SOS. Um, and this is, comes partly from my interest in poetry, uh, you know, idea of what, what do things look like on the page. But as a writer, I knew that if I was going to switch out of the first person, that I needed a bridge so that it wasn't so jarring. So I made this wall in which there was no subject so that when it said... I think the next line is like, the wife is praying a little to Rilke, she thinks. And so it's sort of, some people actually told me they didn't really notice the change for a while. Um, some people notice it right away. But that's how that section goes, and it has that break. And later, when it changes again, there's sort of a moving out of that. So that was my, my thinking sort of technically as well. Yeah. It's uh, the, the distance you introduced there. Is that also a distance from your own story? Um, is is it, is it more of you in the first part than the second? I think there is more of me in the first part because I feel more confident about writing about um, aspects of what I was like a long time ago. Um, like the parts about her when she's sort of a depressive wannabe art monster, um, a lot of them are meant to be quite funny, um, the sort of like self-obsession where every single thing in the world like goes back to you and your own uh, problems that you have. And then when it's in the middle, um, I think that I also felt the weight of trying not to have this character uh, feel a lot of self-pity. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like if, if there was a lot of self-pity, uh, whether drawn from my life or other people's lives that I was observing, it would kind of just, it was important to me for the book to have a lot of tonal changes. I thought of it a lot of times like music. Um, like I would be like, oh, it's loud there and I want it to go quieter or it's, and, and so I knew that it would be too loud if I didn't, if I didn't have that distance there. Um, and in terms of like experimental structures in general, I, I, I have a real affinity. I, I tend to like experimental fiction 
that is also very emotional, which is not, they don't always go together. And I like it when the form exists to kind of tamp the emotion. It feels like the emotion is almost uncontrollable. It's like trying to come out through it, but it's being held down. Um, there is, um, there's a story in the book, and there's kind of a track on the side, uh, and that's filled with the uh, facts and scientific observations and uh, kind of small factoids from nature, and uh, and they play along somehow, mm-hmm. and they change, um, and they. I w- when you talk about it as music, I would say that it's kind of a, a polyphonic uh, thing, and and um, they play together somehow. Um, first of all, I wanted to ask you because this is in the first book too. Last yes. things, mm-hmm. right? Uh, why this? Why all this science? Why all this nature? <laughs> um, so I'm I'm really interested in a variety of scientists. Uh, Scientist, but I'm terrible at math, so there's no way that I could ever actually be any kind of real scientist. I mean, I can I can barely do basic mathematics uh, that you have to do in university. So, um, but I also have always thought, like maybe particularly in American fiction, it always felt to me sort of strange that people didn't pull from other disciplines um, more, just because there's all these beautiful, you know, you have your own experience, you have the experience you observe, but there's also this world of Things And sometimes when you come from outside a discipline, things kind of jump out at you, you know, a strangeness of something or a beauty of something. And um, I did have a job once where I was supposed to write for a science kids show. And I remember like taking these things, they were written in this very kind of... Um, it's kind of way that they write for children, like flat and also kind of cheery. And I would read it and I'd be like, but that's actually like kind of a terrifying and beautiful fact. Like, if you took that out and didn't make it with all the, like, ho, 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 around it. Uh, it, So I started kind of there, and I did a lot of that in my first book. And then in this book, i just been collecting facts about space previous to writing Department of Speculation. And when I invented, I wanted her to have a hack job, and I invented her working for this man called the Almost Astronaut, who was trying to be an astronaut, and failed the test, and now he's a rich man who's hiring someone to write about his journey. Um, so then all the space facts sort of started to to come in. Yeah, but the juxtapositions are important, right? right. Because that comes at the same time as she is cooking all her clothes. Right, right. And so she becomes kind of an astronaut. Right, you know? right. And um, the the idea of putting two completely different things mm-hmm. side by side. Right. Well, I mean... This is something I say to my students sometimes, and I, I do believe it's true. It's like I think sometimes your your writing brain or your intuitive brain is much smarter than your analytical brain. And so you can have this idea, I'm going to put all these things in here, and they're going to have these two tracks in the novel. But if you don't do it exactly right, and this is my problem often sometimes when I'm reading fiction, it feels schematic. I can feel every move. And I actually had to do kind of the opposite. Like, I had some sections that were too direct about astronauts and loneliness and, you know, being in a sealed container that I had to take out because I thought they were, like, point on point. But I Because astronauts actually have their head in a jar, right? Right. (laughs) Exactly. Quite literally. Yes, good point. Um, And so I felt like uh, that was one of those moments where, and frankly, I was often quite bad at it, but I just tried to tolerate the uncertainty of not knowing how those things went together. And I'm pretty ruthless uh, 
if I just eventually think something isn't working, I'll just, I'll throw it away. So I was like, I'll just keep theirs or other things that were other science things um, that I kept. But for me, like the metaphor I use sometimes is it's like, I would know something was like a point of light. Like I knew that every time I read it, I was drawn to the mystery of it. And then, but I didn't know what it was going to be. I, did, I knew it was going to, I was trying to make a constellation, but you know, we make up those constellations. Is it a belt buckle? Is it, you know, a bear? And so that's what I was waiting to come through to me. Yeah, because on the one hand, it seems like uh, what you're talking about, the fascination for the beauty of nature and the strangeness of it. And on the other hand, it seems like uh, more melancholy. It's, <laughs> it's about knowledge right. and knowledge that's suddenly obsolete. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, one worldview, uh, scientific worldview, yeah. is suddenly replaced by another. Yeah. And that resembles... Oh, he's such a good reader of this book. <laughs> he's telling me things I didn't even... I, mean, I, feel, I feel smarter already. Like, yes, I did plan that. Yeah. That's very like clever. That. Yeah, very, very clever, sir. Very clever. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that happens to her right? too, right? When you discover something like adultery in mm -hmm. your own marriage or something, that's, that's almost like when the world is no longer flat. or mm -hmm. It's knowledge in itself. It's, right. And how it's suddenly... Not valid anymore. Right, right. Seems like you were fascinated with that too. Because well, a lot of these uh, references are from previous ideas that are now mm -hmm. bygones. Yes, I, I, I like obsolete knowledge. Um, and that's, I've talked a little bit sometimes in interviews about that I like to go to a library and then I actually prefer it to be kind of a second rate. <laughs> university library where they just never take the old books out. Or have the previous theory. Yeah, the, yeah. No, they should. So I, yeah. then you pull out some book and see what people were saying, you know, was the problem with mother love in 1912. <laughs> you know, and then it's, it's sometimes more interesting than what people are saying now. At least the language is more interesting. So I do think that, like, she hasn't learned a new set of knowledge yet um, about what it means to be in this new life that she's in. And she has all these things that they they are, just as you say, it's sort of like they float around in her brain, but they no longer seem like anything to hang on to. No. Um, I'm not, uh, actually, not completely finished with the art monster. Uh, it still fascinates me that um, the idea of the artist is uh, so terribly romantic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. And... Uh, uh, Rachel Cusk, for instance, she wrote once that in the book you mentioned, the issue of children and who looks after them has become, in my view, profoundly political. And so it would be a contradiction to write a book about motherhood without explaining to some degree how I found the time to write it. And she says, has become. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's strange to me. Mm -hmm. It probably always was. Always was, I think. Uh, but the art monster... So, so the idea of writing as a mother or father or a parent or anything that I can't see how that um, has to, as a mother I can't see how that has changed all that much. But uh, the idea of the artist as a visionary, you have in here a theory of light, for mm -hmm. instance, that mm -hmm. the narrator discusses with a friend, and the theory goes like this: that uh, children are born with kind of a light in their eyes, and you alluded to that, and. Um, it diminishes, right? And geniuses somehow, artists, explorers, uh, charismatic... Mystics. Yeah, mystics. Uh, they have kept some of it. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it's meant to diminish. That's the scary thing. It's meant to go yeah. away. Yeah. But can the art monster exist outside after like 1900? <laughs> um, well, I I will answer by telling this story. Uh, I was watching a documentary called River and Tides about the uh, artist Andrew Goldsworthy, who does this land art, and he's a very interesting artist. And he was sitting in his kitchen in Scott, rural Scotland, and he was talking and saying all these interesting things about art and life and transience and vanishing. And, and you would just see in the distance sometimes a woman and sometimes children. And they, he never... He, he was never thrown off. And, and, and actually, I, this is something that my husband will attest to. I will often, when we're watching, because we like to watch documentaries about an artist, and if it's a man, they won't even mention, like, whether he has children or was married to, like, the very end. Whereas, like, even when Doris Lessing, um, won the Nobel Prize in Literature, some of the first articles were about her were like, left her child behind to pursue her, you know, like literally the next day. Yeah. And I mean, that is a very, you know, you dig very deep into most uh, very well-known artists or writers' biographies. There's going to be some, um, I threw this or that overboard for art. So I think that it is a romantic idea. And I think what might have changed is that it was never even thought possible at all for women to do it. And what what happened at a certain point is either by choosing to not have children or by arranging your life in such a way, um, people started, some women started to like put that same ferocity towards, I mean, <clears throat> I remember at a certain point looking up Virginia Woolf, looking up Jean Reese, look, seeing like, do any of them have children? Like, because I think I was, I didn't have children that, and I was thinking, oh, no, all these amazing writers, like, why did they know? And then you come across a Grace Paley or something, and you feel like, see, it's it, it can be done. Um, but, yeah, I mean, of course, all of this is a romantic vision, this idea of art. I mean, as I, as I say, it's it's not working in a coal mine to be, be a writer. You know, I think writers like to feel that way. But, of course, there's many other things in the world that are much, much more difficult. Yeah. I still think that's what's won in this story, in this novel, is that the idea of the art monster is kind of uh, detronized somehow. You know, it's taken down. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that mm -hmm. uh, uh, life is no longer an intrusion. You know, right. life is not something else. Well, you know that quote, that Yeats quote, like you can either have the perfection of the art or the perfection of the life. And I think, you know, from talking to writers and artists over the years, yeah. I know that everyone knows that quote. Yeah. <laughs> everyone knows it. At some point in their life, it lodges in their head. And, and what I, what I think is that, um, art gets better the longer you, you, you work at it and spend time at it often. And so anything that you do that takes away from that means your art is probably not going to be as good as you might imagine it could be. And so I think that's where I, I, think that I came up with the phrase art monster. I hadn't seen it before, but there's a very common phrase, which is art monk. Yeah. But I think that has a much more sort of like, I give everything to art and I am peacefully <laughs> serene. Whereas art monster is like, you know, William Faulkner saying to his children, 
uh, no one remembers Shakespeare's children. Like, you know, off you go. Or, or he said, someone asked him, well, what if you write about your family? You know, isn't that sort of a being a traitor about them? And he said, which is an odd comparison, but he said, an ode to a Grecian urn is worth any number of old ladies. <laughs> you know, so there is that. And we grow up sort of, at least yeah. I did, with those, and they are often male, those kind of people. And, yeah. and you're right, the book is filled with her ideas of those people. And still it feels like what it's all about is discovering that the divide is false. Right, somehow. right. No, I mean, I think by the end, yeah. it's kind of a straw man. You know, this yeah. idea is, is she's realizing, just in the same way you might have an idea before you're married, that if you marry the right person, you know, you won't feel lonely, or there will be this, and, and actually there's this English philosopher now who's going on the radio all the time and horrifying people by saying, if you, if, if you feel you've married the right person 60% of the time, you're doing amazingly well. You're doing, you, 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 you have like one yeah. of the best marriages around. Yeah. And so I think these certain things kind of, you have a, an ideal, idealistic idea and then an idea that has more um, complexity to it. Uh, we are uh, coming up on the end now. Oh, you want to... You want me to read? Yeah. Um, I do. So just some various sections, or you can, I can read it? Start at the beginning and just... Okay. Um, <laughs> Go. So um, <laughs> these are uh, sections that um, he picked out. Some of them are from different parts, but they I think they flow pretty well together. Um, I'll skip the ones that were mentioned in the introduction. Um, The first time I traveled alone, I went to a restaurant and ordered a steak. But when it came, I saw that it was just a piece of raw meat cut into pieces. I tried to eat it, but it was too bloody. My throat refused to swallow. Finally, I spit it out into a napkin. There was still a great deal of meat on my plate. I was afraid the waiter would notice I wasn't eating and laugh or yell at me. For a long time, I sat there, looking at it. Then I took a roll, hollowed it out, and secreted the meat inside it. I had a very small purse, but I thought I could fit the roll in without being seen. I paid the bill and walked out, expecting to be stopped. But no one stopped me. I met an Australian who said he loved to travel alone. He talked about his job as we drank by the sea. When a student gets it, when it first breaks across his face, it's so fucking beautiful he told me. I nodded, moved, though I'd never taught anyone a single thing. What do you teach? I asked him. Rollerblading, he explained. (laughs) The baby's eyes were dark, almost black, and when I nursed her in the middle of the night, she'd stare at me with a stunned, shipwrecked look, as if my body were the island she'd washed up on. What did you do today? you'd say, when you got home from work, and I'd try my best to craft an anecdote for you out of nothing. Then one day, I discovered something that surprised me. The baby was calm at Rite Aid. It's a drugstore. (laughs) She seemed to like the harsh light of it, the shelves of plenty. For 15, maybe 20 minutes, she'd suspend her fierce judgment of the world and fall silent there. My best friend came to visit me from far away. She took two planes and a train to get to Brooklyn. We met at a bar near my apartment and drank in a hurry 
while the babysitter's meter ticked. In the past, we talked about books and other people, but now we talked only of our respective babies, her sweet-faced and docile, mine at war with the world. We applied our muzzy intellects to a theory of light, that all are born radiating light, but that this light diminished slowly, if one was lucky, or abruptly, if one was not. The most charismatic people, the poets, the mystics, the explorers, were that way because they had somehow managed to keep a bit of this light that was meant to have dimmed. But the shocking thing, the unbearable thing it seemed, was that the natural order was for this light to vanish. It hung on sometimes through the twenties, a glint here or there in the thirties, and then, almost always, the eyes went dark. Is she a good baby? People would ask me. Well, no, I'd say. <laughs> he is famously kind, my husband, always sending money to those afflicted with obscure diseases or shoveling the walk of the crazy neighbor or helloing the fat girl in Rite Aid. He's from Ohio. This means he never forgets. You wouldn't expect to get an Ohio laugh. Um, <laughs> Ohio in the house. Uh, This means he never forgets to thank the bus driver or pushes in front at the baggage claim. Nor does he keep a list of those who infuriate him on a given day. People mean well. This is what he believes. How then is he married to me? I hate often and easily. There is another way in which he is an admirable person. If he notices something is broken, he will try to fix it. He won't just think about how unbearable it is that things keep breaking, that you can never fucking outrun entropy. Someone has given my daughter a doctor's kit. Carefully, she takes her own temperature, places the pressure cuff around her arm. Then she takes the cuff off and examines it. Would you like to be a doctor when you grow up? I ask her. She looks at me oddly. I'm already a doctor, she says. <laughs> Um, and this is from, uh, I don't know if you do this here in Norway, but in America, they send these sort of uh, very fakely sweet holiday letters where you say what's happened in your yeah, family all year. Oh, you do that too? Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so she's lobbying to send this as a, as a holiday letter. It's later over, <laughs> overridden by her husband. Um, this is what she wants to send. Dear family and friends, it is the year of the bug. It is the year of the pig. It is the year of losing money. It is the year of getting sick. It is the year of no book. It is the year of no music. It is the year of turning five and 39 and 37. It is the year of wrong living. That is how we will remember it, if it ever passes. <laughs> With love and holiday wishes. Three things no one has ever said about me. You make it look so easy. You are very mysterious. You need to take yourself more seriously. <laughs> But lately, I'm like a beatnik in a movie. Fuck this bourgeois shit, baby. Let's be pure of heart again. Some women make it look so easy. The way they cast ambition off, like an expensive coat that no longer fits. Taller? Thinner, quieter, 
easier, he says. Other theories she'd had about her husband's gloominess. He no longer has a piano. He no longer has a garden. He no longer is young. She found a community garden and a good therapist for him, then went back to talking about her own feelings and fears while he patiently listened. Was she a good wife? Well, no. How has she become one of those people who wears yoga pants all day? She used to make fun of those people with their happiness maps and their gratitude journals and their bags made out of recycled tire treads. But now it seems possible that the truth about getting older is that there are fewer and fewer things to make fun of until finally there's nothing you are sure you will never be. Towards the end, the baby hadn't been growing quite as she should be, and so once a week, the doctor had the wife come in to be tested. She'd sit in a recliner, hooked up to the machines, waiting to hear the heartbeat. Each time, the wife feared she wouldn't hear it, but then, there it would be, a sound like horses galloping, the way he looked at her when they heard it. It seemed impossible to feel more than they did. There are other lines. She's thinking about how um, when you go to the anniversary section in the card section, uh, they have this poem by uh, Yeats all the time that says, uh, grow old with me, the best is yet to be. So she says, but there are other lines from Yeats the wife keeps remembering. Consume my heart away, sick with desire and fastened to a dying animal. (laughs) Things fall apart. Once ether was everywhere, the crook of an arm, say, also the heavens. It slowed the movement of the stars, told the left hand where the right hand went. Then it was gone, like hysteria, like the hollow earth. The news came over the radio. There's only air now. Abandon your experiments. I thought you wanted to be an art monster, the husband says. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Lit House, the English language podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, Litteraturhuset. Music by Apotek.